You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Interstate Batteries has been a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation since day one. They offer just about every battery under the sun, from car and truck batteries to batteries for your trail cameras and rangefinders. Select retail locations even offer cell phone repair and cracked screen repair. Find a local retail location at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the first episode of the rebranded Iowa-themed podcast, the Iowa Hunt and Fish podcast. And um, for those of you who may be a little confused, we had a, a partnership with the Iowa Sportsman magazine that is no longer uh, happening. So I rebranded this podcast under a new name. But the same great information, right? And uh, really, that's it. Uh, I'm still going to be the host. Um, it's still going to be Iowa-focused, and we're still going to be talking with a lot of cool people from around the state of Iowa uh, who are passionate about the outdoors, passionate about hunting and fishing. And uh, one thing that I'm really excited about is today's episode. We're going to be talking with a guy from Southeast Iowa. His name is Mike Crable, and I've never had a conversation with someone who was so passionate about mushrooms. I'm the kind of guy who I love hunting, right? I could talk to you about bow hunting and whitetails uh, for hours and hours and hours. This guy, uh, and I, I feel we just scratched the surface, so to speak, uh, in this conversation, but Mike is a mushroom enthusiast. Not only uh, does he love uh, foraging for mushrooms, he loves foraging for a whole bunch of different species of uh, food that you can find in the woods, plants and roots and uh, mushrooms. But that's beside the point. Today's main focus is morel mushrooms. Uh, we talk about some other mushrooms, but for the most part, we're talking about morel mushrooms. Those are the most popular this time of year. Uh, and I myself am looking to getting out and uh, putting my head down and looking for morels. I found, see this year, what have I found? I found five grays. And I found five yellow oysters and uh, I've already fried those up and they are delicious eating, by the way. So my goal is to get out and find some more. So I felt it was only the right thing to do to get a mushroom expert on the podcast. And uh, that, my friends, is Mike Crable. So without th further ado, let's get into today's episode where we talk to Mike Crable about mushrooms. Three two, one. All right. On the phone with me today, Mr. Mike Crable. Mike, how we doing, man? Enjoying life. Um, I haven't found my big 
morel mother load yet this year, but <laughs> I know some friends have. <laughs> yeah. So well, it, they're out there. Right. And, and this was a, kind of a weird spring. I felt it was just cold and cold and cold. And then it got a whole, you know, got real warm for a couple of days and then it kind of got cold or cool again. And, um, and, uh, that this time of year, I'm always real excited to, you know, obviously turkey hunt, but at the same time, go out and try to find mushrooms, but the mushrooms don't yell at you and they're not saying, Hey, I'm over here. Come get me. No, but you bring up a really good point. Uh, turkey hunting is going on now <laughs> yep. and there are sometimes uh, a little bit of clashes in between turkey hunters and morel hunters that we really don't want to see um and um the dnr has a a a copy of an article i did for them called 50 tips to put more morels in your basket and um, i'd if anybody um, can go to the uh, iowa dnr um, website and look for that you'll find a, a preface written by someone in the know, someone who has hunted more turkeys than I have, uh, that recommends some some things that you can do so that you can avoid conflict. One uh, for morel hunters is not to get out there real early in the morning like turkey hunters do. Yeah. Um, another is to be careful of the after-work crowd that might come out uh, hunting turkeys. And then uh, wearing a blaze orange um, probably is not a bad idea if, if you're a morel hunter. Uh, and looking if, if there are, everybody seems to be parked, uh, you know, in, in in area where you go into the woods, uh, either for turkey hunting or morel hunting, you might want to say, oops, it's going to be crowded. Maybe I should go to another spot. Right, right. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Well, I think the the perfect place to start this conversation about whether it's morels or any type of mushrooms really is the conditions that we need, right? Because we can right. look under uh, a certain tree or in certain soil types uh, all day long every day, but if the conditions are, aren't right, we won't find them. So in your experience throughout the years being a mushroom hunter and a forager, what kind of conditions do we need for morel mushrooms? And then you can elaborate on to other uh, species of mushrooms too. Good point. Um, and you've mentioned that um, in your preface. Uh, we we did start out uh, pretty cold um, uh, back uh, in the beginning of our spring. And um, that's not the sort of thing that you want to have for mushrooms. I was... Um, elated to find out that there was a a scientific study done in Iowa, a 10-year-long study on the distribution and ecology of the morels and false morels of Iowa. I'm looking at it now, hold it in my hand, and it's um, typical of a scientific publication. There were uh, two professors from Iowa State, um, Lois Tiffany and uh, uh, George Nafas, that was involved, and um, Don Huffman uh, was involved from uh, Pella College, um, uh, let's see, that's called Central College. And one of the things that they found that's connected with the weather and the conditions is that the soil temperature is important and not just the air temperature. The air temperature um, should be in, in between 60 degrees Fahrenheit, you know, uh, in the daytime and 
50 degrees Fahrenheit in the evening. And we had some days that were warm, but we had some evenings where frost was on the pumpkin, so to speak. Yeah. So uh, what they uh, suggested uh, is, is borne out by the 10 years of research. 53 degrees Fahrenheit is the temperature of the soil uh, at a four-inch depth. And fortunately, Iowa State University uh, regards that four-inch depth as a, a good thing for farmers to know. And so they have um, a 99-county kind of outline map with the soil temperatures um, that you can access uh, through a little bit of searching. But I find uh, that it's more important to have a little digital um, instant read thermometer that I can carry with me in the glove compartment of my car or put in my um, my uh, basket when I go out um, hunting and then I can pull it off uh, the sheath, push it into the soil and, and get an instant read right there. 53 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. And I went to some likely locations this spring and lo and behold, the cold rain that we had had overnight uh, had lowered the temperature, and uh, it wasn't the sort of thing that would encourage the morels to pop up. Okay. So once we once we have this ideal soil temperature, are there any other, um, uh, I guess, uh, things that come into play like rain, right? If the temperature is, if the soil is, is, 53 degrees but it's real dry what yeah uh, that what, absolutely yeah uh, we i think as uh, people that have been out hunting morels before we're always grateful when there's a rain that comes along uh, if the soil is dry um, dry soil re- results in mushrooms that are no bigger than your little finger um, and they feel kind of like styrofoam if you actually feel them uh, they're not very flexible uh, so Yes, uh, rain. Uh, I had a friend um, that had uh, company coming to, to go over his acres um, in a, in annual mushroom kind of thing, and he and his family had been out checking it ahead of time uh, to uh, so they'd know where to find the morels. And they found an assortment of morels, but they were not all kind of uniform and looking really good. Uh, some of them were small and gray to white, and some of them were bigger, uh, but but most of them were still kind of small. And they said, we've got to have some more rain. We'll pray for some rain before the company comes on our weekend. And they did get rain. They got about an inch of rain. I haven't talked with them since then, but that's that's a big part of what we, we need to have. Uh, we need to have the warm daytime temperatures, uh, warm evening temperatures that are in the 50s at the lowest, and then... Uh, we we uh, need to have that that extra moisture that uh, seems to to bring them upwards. Okay, so with that said, are there any type of worst case scenarios where we we don't get that into maybe we don't get those kind of temperatures if it's a cool spring into the let's just say the late May early June time frame where the evening temperatures aren't around fifty degrees? Does that just stop mushroom production or will they eventually come up it slows it down or if it we have a blast of really hot weather and then it gets freezing cold again um that kind of false uh scenario just doesn't work for morels 
for a very consistent and nice season. Uh, one of the problems that we've got with our rainfall um, in the spring of the year is its um, spottiness. Yeah. Uh, you know, it might be raining inches uh, in one place. Uh, let's say Mount Pleasant, as a person comes down uh, from uh, northern Iowa, and then if they uh, go on down an, another uh, 15 miles or so, there's no rain. Yeah. And I found that myself when um, hunting by near uh, us in Missouri. Uh, Missouri was get, northeastern Missouri was getting the rainfall that was really necessary for a great crop of morels. We weren't. And so the morels were, uh, people were finding 60 pounds of morels and, uh, you know, just bragging about them when they went into a nearby gas station. And I found out about that, of course. Uh, I didn't find out where they were finding them, but uh, I did learn that people were saying, yes, the morel season is here. Yeah. And morels actually um, are kind of like the birds. They come north with the spring. Um, you know, they come back, they return. And I have uh, friends out in Indiana that are well-known uh, for their mushroom hunting. And what they do is they uh, have 700 different sites that they have found major mother loads of mushrooms um, ranging from North Carolina through Tennessee up into Missouri and then ending in Iowa. By the time they reach Iowa in their uh, little travel trailer, um, or a camper, they have 200 pounds on the average every single year. Dang. So it, it's being will, willing to uh, study uh, maps. There's There are places on the web that you can go and you can find out um, how many uh, morels are being found and uh, as the season progresses. Yeah. I took a look at the map yesterday, and it shows them all the way from... Um, Texas, all the way up into Canada now. So they are being found in Iowa. And uh, as if you seem to run out, uh, if you're in the southern part at the end of the season, the season typically ranges anywhere from a month and a half up to two months. Um, if, if your season is running out, you just hunt further north in Iowa. Um, we've been up to uh, northeastern Iowa. Uh, when we were all exhausted down in this part, and there have been people from uh, Cedar Rapids and Waterloo um, area that have uh, come down to hunt here. Uh, they found morels here, uh, and then later on in the season, uh, our Prairie States Mushroom Club um, that I'm a member of uh, got together and held, held forays further north, and we found them up there. This happens to be a really, really fine year for morel hunting if the rain in your area has been okay and if the temperatures are warming up. Yeah. One of the best indicator species. Um, people talk about different kinds of things like uh, uh, trilliums and, uh, and uh, violets and, uh, um, <laughs> oh, gosh, um, I'm trying to think of the uh, name of the f bush flower that um, um, starts with an L. Lilac? Lilac, yes. Yeah. When the lilacs are still kind of budded and ready to burst open, that's a great indication. Okay. Uh, but 
I find the most consistent message uh, is available in a very widespread wildflower uh, that we don't think of a wildflower. We think of it as a weed, and that's dandelion. Okay. When the dandelions first come in, the morels are starting to come in. <laughs> when the dandelions are at their peak, the morel season seems to be at its peak. Okay. And so if I see a lot of yellow out there, I know I shouldn't be spending my time uh, in, indoors. <laughs> yeah. Well, if my front yard is any indicator uh, of uh, dandelions be, you know, being that indicator, well, then the, the mushrooms should be on and popping right now. <laughs> Yes, yes, so, that's probably true, and I hope uh, that you continue are able to continue uh, hunting for a couple more weeks at least. Yeah. And if you can, you can get some rain to help things along, uh, by all means, um, uh, take the time and uh, and get out there. Yeah. So let me ask you this: Once we have those conditions, um, I've heard different stories, and I'd like to hear what you have to say about it. Um, that is is a mushroom. Uh, a fast growing organism like if the conditions hit it's growing overnight or does it take a couple days for it to reach its full size uh various experiences with that and my my experience is that they can seemingly pop up overnight um i think that's my most uh reliable answer there are times when you hunt and you hunt and you hunt and you swear they're not going to come up and boom, the next time you go, there they are. Um, but it doesn't always seem to, to be the case. So you get a little frustrated, and, and finally the um, understory vegetation hides everything, and then they're really, really hard to find, even though they might be present out there. Yeah. All right, so we've kind of talked about the conditions that we need for these mushrooms to grow in. Now we have the conditions and we want to walk out into the woods and we, we want to start looking for them. I've heard a thousand different wives' tales about where a guy or gal needs to go to look for mushrooms. Yeah. W- with your experience, where do mushrooms grow most favorably? Think of the streams in Iowa. Um, as the streams flow along, uh, they'll carry silt and sand and so forth, particles, um, through the years. And eventually build up um, along the sides of the streams, they'll build up terraces. And there will be oxbows where uh, flood water gets trapped and so forth. And um, those areas of sandy uh, soil are, A, the first to warm up in the spring, and B, um, often the ones that, um, because they warm up fast, uh, will encourage the growth of mushrooms um, before sometimes, it seems, the growth of other plants. And so if you're out there looking in the right spot, it could be that you're going to stumble onto a mother load if someone else hasn't already done it. Um, we had um, that happen um a few years ago, where, um, after I asked at this gas station, then uh, the person reportedly had found 60 pounds. I asked further down uh, towards Missouri and across the river in Quincy, Illinois, and the people had been out in a motorboat and had uh, gone 
over to some of the islands, uh, Sandy, and but along the stream, and uh, with a terrace area. So they were up above where it normally would flood, and they were finding 80 pounds. Well, a pound of mushrooms, just to envision what a pound of mushrooms looks like, if you take a plastic uh, food saver container and um, it would hold a quart, a quart of mushrooms is about one pound. Okay. All right. So, um, and of course, one of the reasons that they are doing it is because people are desirable of getting as many mushrooms as they can. And if they get older like me, they're um, willing to sometimes fork over a little bit of money instead of getting out there um, as much as I like to. Um, I'm, I don't walk as fast as I used to or, or, or see necessarily as well. But, uh, uh, you know, you appreciate it when some professional mushroom hunter uh, comes up with a bunch. I find even then um, that uh, they will also um, start getting up um, over the hills of the hardwoods. Uh, for instance, oak is number two in Iowa as far as the tree that uh, is most often uh, found to have um, morel mushrooms. The number one, of course, would be um, the um, elms. And when uh, Dutch elm disease came into Iowa in 1956 uh, from Illinois over to Cranon Paper Mills in uh, Fort Madison, um, and it started spreading, it spread pretty fast. And uh, it wasn't long before about 95% of the uh, elms, uh, at least the urban elms, seemed to have been uh, affected by Dutch elm disease. Uh, and like me, uh, going out, if you recognize elms, um, and especially um, elms that have gotten Dutch elm disease, uh, limbs uh, uh, might die uh, one side of the tree and then uh, later on the next year, the whole tree dies. Well, morels uh, are uh, very closely associated with elms, and they um, form a symbiotic relationship where their hyphae, which are like tiny white roots um, from the uh, morel mushrooms, will connect with the uh, root hairs of, of the elm trees. And they will furnish for the elm um, minerals uh, that we would think of as fertilizer, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. And the tree will grow much better. And the tree, in turn, uh, for the symbiotic relationship, will produce food up in the leaves. And the, uh, that food will get moved down into the roots. And so the morels benefit from uh, the carbohydrates that are produced Huh. Um, that way, uh, and both um, actually increase the uh, ability of the the tree and the morels to absorb water. Uh, so um, they're they're helping each other that way. Now, when the tree begins to die, somehow the morels can sense that this is being shut off, and they decide, well. Excuse me for giving them brains, <laughs> but somehow they know. Yeah. They know, uh, and they send up a little sclerotia, which is a, a, a little uh, spot of hyphae where the uh, mycelium comes together, 
and it uh, starts creating a morel mushroom that will pop up through the soil. As the morels then pop up, uh, the spores get spread by wind, by animals, by humans that are out searching for morels, and uh, you tend to get the morels moving, migrating in a sense, to a different location. Uh, and so they might start up at the top of a hill and move down to the bottom of the hill. Uh, and particularly, uh, we know that water um, flows downhill, and so uh, if you're not finding them at the top of the ridge or the top of the hill where you're hunting, uh, go down to the bottom of the hill and, and take a look uh, where the water might come out. So those are places uh, to look. Um, when uh, So when to look is, is pretty important. Um, and we talked about indicator species, weather um, in soils and, and uh, trees. Um, when everything is is just right, uh, dead elms are often uh, the morel magnets. Um, and because all 99 of Iowa's counties um, got hit in the 1950s, uh, which killed, as I said, about 95% of the urban trees, um, the remaining elms will produce a, a prodigious amount of um, elm seeds that are wind-borne yeah. and um, help spread it. Yeah. So your, your best luck, uh, luck is going to be finding uh, these dying elms. Uh, they're still dying uh, or has died within the last year. If the bark is all off the tree, you're not going to find uh, morels there. Okay. But if the bark is still tight and um, starting to loosen, you may definitely find um, morels. Right. Um, so it's not just elms. Um, it's it's um, other plants that grow in the area. It could be under silver maple. It could be under uh, sycamore trees. Um, it could be under black cherry. Black cherry seems to be a good tree for it. Old apple orchards, uh, where the apples are slowly uh, having a hard time uh, anymore, tend to be uh, great spots for morels to to find and, and take off. Also ash. Uh, we've got lots of kinds of ashes in Iowa. They're uh, trees that have opposite limbs, opposite branching, and compound leaves. And with the uh, uh, ash uh, borer uh, problem that's spreading around the state now uh, and starting to affect ashes, uh, you may see an increase, uh, particularly around some of the bigger ashes. Um, of uh, morels being found. Black locust is another one that I found uh, that is going into black locust groves. Uh, you've got to watch out for the young trees with the thorns on them, but um, that's they're also good. Uh, so um, I've even found um, morels in white pine plantations that were planted in Iowa um, back uh, at during the Civilian Conservation Corps back in the 1930s. And yeah. uh, some of those trees will will have them as well as other mushrooms. Yeah. So those so, those are good places to look. Um, I, I don't hold with um, taking a hiking stick and chopping down uh, maples um, in a search for morels. I, I, I think that's horrible. Uh, it just destroys uh, the maples. Um it looks terrible, and it's uh, it's not a good thing. I think, uh, you know, if you're really curious that there might be some morels under some of the maples, then use your hiking stick to gently push it 
one direction or another and give you a, a little bit of a look. Yeah. But, um, yeah. So, you know, we can walk into the timber and then we, we have some big open, let's, let's just call it open timber where there's a good canopy yeah. above yeah. us, but it's easy to walk through. And then we have uh, like maybe an old, uh, maybe 25, 30 years ago, it used to be a cattle pasture, but now it's all grown up. There's some immature trees. There's a lot of uh, thickness closer to the ground. Um, would any of those two places, would you focus on one over the other? I would look uh, in open woods uh, in, rather than um, places that have been overgrown by brush that often happens in old pastures. Um, the uh, where you get brush coming up, uh, typically, let's let's say some of the multiflora rose that I uh, was wrongly encouraged to plant years ago, <laughs> right. or some of the autumn olive um, that um, I was wrongly encouraged by DNR and by uh, what was at that time called the Iowa Department of Conservation. Uh, had a name change since then. I wonder why, but. Um, the same thing was true of the Soil Conservation Service. Now they're called the Natural Resources Conservation Service. And I have apologized to landowners where uh, I took my scout troop in and we helped plant these things. And they were great um, for attracting birds, um, uh, migrating birds especially. And unfortunately, the migrating birds uh, spread the seed, um, dug on it, uh, and it made it hard uh, to look for morels. Um, so I I like open patches of woods, um, and I I like um, preferred to a, a grown over area. I gotcha. Um, I think I think morels need a little bit of sunlight, especially in the beginning of the season, uh, to warm up the soil. Um, and if you're on a uh, aspect of slope, is important too. So if you're on a south facing slope. It receives uh, the energy of the sun uh, during the day. That's going to be fine early in the season, but later in the season, you want to start looking on slopes that face towards the north because they don't dry out so fast, and so the water is going to be better. So yeah. uh, knowing a little bit about ecology and about the woods is pretty important to uh, finding morels. Yeah. And so. And the last thing I, I would say in, in that uh, regard, too, is if you're out um, hunting morels, don't give up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because these suckers are hard to find. They're yeah. hard to spot, especially if you're tall. Uh, and it's a good reason for taking kids out with you uh, that are closer to the ground. They can see the little morels that are standing up above the ground, whereas if you're up at six foot or six foot one uh, and looking down, they're going to disappear into the leaves that are decaying from last year, and they're going to be hard to spot. Yeah. Uh, Michigan had a very famous morel hunter, unfortunately, die of, uh, from uh, the time when his uh, four-wheeler rolled over on top of him. But um, he was six foot seven, and he was called a tree. <laughs> and uh, one of the things that he did was that he learned how to squat down as he walked forward. Uh, there used to be a comedian that had a game show, uh, uh, Groucho Marx, uh, years ago. And Groucho, every once in a while, would 
would do a little duck walk around uh, his podium, and it was kind of uh, characteristic of him, but he would squat down and walk like a duck, and he would make some quacking sounds. And at that time, uh, smoking was uh, okay on TV, and he would have a big fat cigar in his mouth, and he'd wobble that around. I, I remember how distinctive that looked. But the idea is to make yourself lower so your perspective changes and so that you're able to see those mushrooms sticking up. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Larry Alonick um, also said, don't look down by your feet, look 10 to 20 feet away. And there was another person that um, came up with the idea of uh, using what's called foveal vision, F-O-V-E-A-L, Foveal vision is a vision where both eyes are viewing, like straight ahead. If you've gone in for a driver's test, uh, they'll ask you, to, can you see this on the outskirts of your eye, your peripheral vision? Uh, You don't find morels with peripheral vision. You find them with the foveal vision that is focused where both eyes meet. And so you kind of move your head instead of moving your eyes uh, when you're looking for morels. If you spot one morel, also look around. Don't pick it. Don't pick it yet. Look around, because where you see one, there's going to be more. I've rarely ever found them just alone by themselves, especially you, you wait a little bit and look. And later season, and now that's what we're getting into down here in Lee County, uh, later season, towards the end of the season, you're more likely to find groups of morels that grow in clusters. So where you see one, often uh, you're going to see others in the same cluster, uh, same area nearby. So that's important, uh, I think, uh, to be successful in finding um, morels. Um, yeah. A person can get you know, ready for the season by printing out... Um, pictures of morels from the internet. You could go to Google search images, for instance, and pick pick some um, morel mushrooms that are uh, nice pictures, print them out, put them on your refrigerator. So every time you open that refrigerator door, you're looking at morels. And it becomes uh, imprinted on your mind. So when you're out there looking, um, maybe you're not really paying attention, but all of a sudden something... uh, registers in your brain morel you know uh it's a pattern that sometimes you're aware of and then if it causes you to come back and look carefully and then boom there they are yeah so we've talked a lot about morels but uh i found and this was the actually the first time that i ever tried to eat them uh, I cooked them. No. I cooked them up just like a morel, um, you know, a little egg wash, a little flour, and, and fried them up. But um, right. and it was a golden oyster uh, mushroom. Oh yeah, yeah. So the golden oysters are not native. Um, they uh, were from uh, China and Asia, uh, and they were imported over here and sold like crazy, so people could raise them at home uh, in little kits. And I think um, some of the people heard about the idea of farming the forest so that they could uh, let the forest do the work and simply go out to 
down trees and especially elms that are down um, and uh, you know transplant so to speak not really transplanting but smushing some of these uh, um, golden oysters on on the um, elm tree and lo and behold some of them took uh, they're pretty aggressive in producing spores and and um, boom, there there they are. The golden oysters, by the way, for people that are listening uh, uh, to this program, um, look golden on top. They've got a fairly flat cap with a little dip in the middle. And if you look on the underside, you'll see white um, stems and the white and white gills. And the white gills run down the stem just a little ways, and the stem itself is often bent. Yeah. Okay. It, it's not perfectly straight, and so they're fairly easy to recognize. And when you find them, usually there's a good quantity of them. Yeah, yeah. I found a, so, I would say so half a gallon you, bag. How did you uh, How did you fix them again? Um, I I put them in an egg wash, and then I okay. just got got them uh, or put from the egg wash into some flour, and then from some flour into the pan uh, with oil, and and uh, that's how I cooked them up. You're making my mouth water. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, and I want to go out and, uh, after. Uh, yeah, you know. sounds good. Yep. Um, sounds good. And and um, one of the, I went to the um, Iowa State University's um, morale certification course this year online. Um, and I thought, you know, um, while I could probably teach the course, I, I can learn some new things from it. And they had a, a, a great little booklet uh, that Iowa State has put out um, on called Safe Mushroom Foraging. And right on the front cover below, uh, there's a picture of the uh, golden oyster. Um, it's also known as the yellow oyster, by the way. But at any rate, um, that was part of the presentation this year. So we got certified in safe mushroom foraging, not only for morels, but also for oyster mushrooms. Oh, nice. And that included the regular oyster that we we have, uh, the common oyster, uh, that can grow much larger, um, even though not quite as abundant, but it has overlapping shelves and so forth. Uh, and those regular oyster mushrooms will uh, usually start out uh, late spring and go through the year. Uh, we've even found them in, in the wintertime, which is kind of weird, but uh, at any rate... Uh, so they, sometimes uh, the oysters themselves uh, change color from kind of a silvery uh, white color uh, to uh, an uh, to a brown. Um, but I, I'm glad you mentioned them. Uh, yeah. So that's the other. Um, there's another plant um, or another fungus, I should say, that looks quite similar and that often grows at the time that people are out hunting uh, for um, morels and. That's called the dryad saddle or pheasant back. Yep. And it's spotted. It's a shelf mushroom that grows on wood. And it's spotted uh, on on top, uh, speckled, kind of like the, uh, the scales are somewhat like uh, a pheasant when you're looking down and imagining that it's a pheasant. Yep. Yep. Uh, and and it and you don't want to gather it when it's tough. It needs to be small uh, or you need to take a knife. Uh, let's say you've got a, a fillet knife with you uh, carried in your uh, morel hunting basket. Uh, you can use that, and if it cuts very easily, the outside edge, 
then you can uh, take it with you. Now, the, the pheasant back or uh, dryad saddle has a watermelon kind of smell uh, or cucumber kind of smell to it, and it's a little on the sour side, but many, many people like it and um, are willing to accept it as a consolation prize when they don't find the morels. Right, because I, I found uh, quite a bit of pheasant back um, uh-huh. the last time that I went. Now, I... I I heard just like you said. I I pulled the small ones, the the tender ones, uh, but for some mm-hmm. for some reason, this batch that I ate did not taste as good as previous years' batches. So I don't, and I I kind of cooked them the same way. I I sauteed right. them with onions and then I mixed them with an omelet. I made an omelet with them. Uh-huh. And uh, the first year I did it, it was really good. So maybe the ones that I got this year were not as tender as I thought they were. That tenderness is a big, big thing yeah. uh, in in terms of that mushroom. And, uh, yeah, it, that, yeah, the older they get uh, the or the harder they get, it's kind of like um, uh, the chicken mushroom, uh, also known as the sulfur shelf, which is another mushroom that starts out in late spring and goes through the summer and is especially common in the fall is one of the wonderful mushrooms together in the fall. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, I'm, you can see it everywhere you go. Um, and I have actually gone hunting for it, believe it or not, with a pair of binoculars. Because if the woods are still kind of open and you take a look and you can see um, 100 yards or uh, 50 yards or whatever away from you, it is bright orange. Yeah, on top and then sulfur yellow, bright yellow on the underside. And uh, when you um, find it small or when you're able to cut the outside growing edge that's tender and cook it up, it, it's the same texture as uh, chicken breast meat. Huh. And it's often used in uh, vegan recipes for people that, uh, you know, uh, want to make use of mushrooms uh, uh, for meatless meals. Yeah. All right. So this time of year, obviously the timber is coming alive. You know, we got uh, new growth. We have, you know, these mushrooms popping up. Are there any other species of mushrooms that we might want to look for or any other plants or any other foraging opportunities for uh, someone wanting to go out and try? Uh, There are, um, and one of them um, is called the wine cap stropharia. Uh, it typically comes up on um, areas that, um, well, are more urban. Uh, you might find it on wood chips, for instance, if uh, there's a, a path in a park or um, in a, a landscape garden. Uh, you might might see them there, uh, where you've got compost growing. Um, and besides the wine cap, uh, let's see, uh, some of the inky caps uh, can come up too. You've got to know what you're doing uh, with the inky caps. Um, uh, there is one type of inky cap that uh, uh, can be kind of embarrassing um, when a person consumes alcohol with it. The other inky caps don't seem to have that problem. So. Um, that was Coprinus atramentarius, uh, and uh, uh, so uh, basically the inky cap mushroom um, 
It has the property of deliquescing, uh, which means that it decays itself and turns into a black puddle of ink. I've uh, taken them as a science teacher. We pick some and um, put them in a, a little, uh, like a cereal bowl, and left them in the classroom overnight. And we probably shouldn't have done that because it's, it started to smell pretty bad. <laughs> but um, the kids thought it would be fun to take a turkey feather. Uh, our geography teacher was one that uh, said, Mr. Crable, can you use any uh, uh, turkey feathers? And I said, yeah, we'd love to use them to, to check and, and find out uh, what early settlers used for ink. And, and the kids wrote messages, and they had a lot of fun with them. But um, the, um, uh, let's see, there's there's some others that were on the tip of my mind. I think I wrote them down. Let me see if I've got my list here, because I was looking through the things that you were. Okay. Um, there's another um, type of chicken of the woods uh, that you sometimes will uh, come out about this time of the year, and uh, and then it comes out the rest of the summer. Um, in, in, into the fall. It's um, called the white poured chicken of the woods. Um, are you old enough to remember um, buying uh, cream sickles, like clopsicles at the store? Um, I don't no, know. Okay. Probably not. Yeah. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, basically... They were like popsicles, but they had they were orange on the outside, uh, kind of a salmon orange on the outside, and then um, they had a white um, layer underneath. Okay. At any rate, I remember them as a kid, and that that's exactly the color that they are. They look if you're looking if you can imagine a big rose that's sitting on the ground near an oak tree, and it has its petals wide open, and you're seeing the different petals uh, overlapping one another, like the, the structure of a flower, and uh, those would be a light orange on top, and if you look carefully at each one of those um, petals, shall we call it a petal, and uh, they would be wrinkled, like they needed to be ironed. Okay. And then if you look at the underside, since this is um, a mushroom that doesn't have gills, but it has little tiny pinholes called pores, if you looked at the underside, it would be white instead of being uh, the sulfur yellow that you find in its, um, in the other um, chicken of the woods. Gotcha. So this mushroom, um, Laetiporus cincinnatus, uh, is the white chicken of the woods or the white sulfur shelf. It's not really sulfur, but um, it is delicious eating, and I, I regard that as one of my very favorite mushrooms of all times. Yeah. Let me ask you this. Um, let's say a guy finds a bu bunch of mushrooms, and uh, maybe he has enough where he can, he can waste a handful of them. Is it possible to take a, an old mushroom, whether it's a morel or, you know, a chicken of the woods or um, the, the golden oyster that we talked about and dump it on a tree or smash it into the ground and in hopes that the next season it will, it will pop up? Uh, I have done this most of my life, <laughs> and I would tell you I haven't had any luck, Okay, <laughs> um, to be honest. But I, I know you read in some of the books 
I've got books on mushroom cultivation because that's an interest of mine as well. And I, I know there are places in Iowa that where they raise mushrooms and then sell them commercially. Um, and I would imagine that they're doing that sort of thing uh, on their compost bundles and and uh, their temperatures to follow, and uh, you have to, you know, keep the mushroom at the right kind of an environment uh, and the right level of moisture, and it gets a lot more complicated than uh, one might imagine, um, especially if you want to try growing morels. I know um, that was done uh, in uh, the state of Michigan. Uh, there was a large pizza maker um, uh, which, um, you know, decided he wanted to have morels on his pizzas and sell them that way. And those suckers were no bigger than the last little joint on the little finger. Yeah. <laughs> they were small and kind of looked dried up. The flavor was there, but um, it. I think they eventually gave up on it after after quite a while. Gotcha. Um, so, cool. but... Um, yeah, there there are places that do that. Um, in fact, the next time I go down to North Carolina to visit my brother and uh, my sister and and our um, uh, his kids, and you know, since I'm an uncle, um, I hope to go to a place that raises mushrooms and uh, and uh, buy some really good ones to bring back home and, and cook up for the family. But um, we also uh, have. Uh, the other aspect I think that we haven't really talked about today that is worth talking uh, about if we've got just a few more minutes. Yeah. Okay. Is what do you do if you if you find the mother load um, and you uh, want to set some aside for your family and then you want to sell the rest? Well, let's talk about um, setting some aside for your family. What's the best way to do it? I talk with them. Um, a very famous mushroom hunter who has written quite a few books, has a worldwide reputation when I, I met him and we had a good time going out and hunting together. But he said, "It's I can answer it in one word or two words, dry them. They'll keep for 20 years if you dry them. Okay. Well, yeah, but uh, that doesn't necessarily uh, keep the flavor perfect. Uh, what helps... Keep the Flavor Perfect was um, experimented with uh, by the uh, Joe McFarlane and Greg Muller uh, over at the University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbana, and they wrote Edible Wild Mushrooms of Illinois and Surrounding States. It's a marvelous book with a lot of great pictures. They have a, a chapter, for instance, on morels, and they show pictures of morels and morels, uh, the false morels that um, people sometimes get poisoned by or made sick by. And that's another topic uh, for us to put on the back of our minds here. But um, what they rec uh, said is that if you freeze them, you're going to wind up with mush. Okay. Because mushrooms are 95% water. And freezing them causes the water inside each one of the cells that make up the mushroom to burst through the cell wall. I had that happen to me, unfortunately, years ago. My brother uh, had, was in Des Moines, and his wife um, knew that I was fond of morels, and they had found some morels, and they had frozen them. And she made a casserole 
um, morale casserole. And I, um, I'm so sorry to say this, but uh, you know, uh, especially if, if she's around listening. Uh, but dug on it, um, it was, uh, it was sad. It was awful. <laughs> uh, it didn't taste good. It was mushy. Uh, right. You know. So, um, what the, uh, these people from the University of Illinois said you need to do is to partially dry them first, reduce the amount of water that could cause them all the cells to be ruptured. Um, if you dry them, uh, they can get on the tough side. So it's got to be a combination of, of drying and then freezing. Um, another uh, woman that I talked with has said that what uh, she had done uh, is that her mother had gathered them up and she breaded them as though, and she cooked them part way, but not all the way. And that kept the flavor concentrated. She, uh, then she froze them again in um, a vacuum sealer uh, or multiple uh, plastic bags um, and then store them. You can store them, uh, if you can, in a, a cold spot or whatever, but uh, it's, it's better to, to refrigerate them if you can. Okay. So a combination, I think, of, of partially drying them, say dry them for two hours, stop, put them in the freezer, and freeze them so they'll stay in the shape uh, that, that you like to have uh, morel mushrooms in. And then uh, once you've got them in the shape that you want, uh, take them from, let's say, a, a, a baking pan that you've uh, spread them out on in the, the freezer and put them in a vacuum sealer. Okay. And most of the people that like to hunt uh, often will save a game that way. So you should have a vacuum sealer at home. If you don't, it might be a good investment, especially if you wind up with a lot of uh, morel mushrooms. Absolutely. Well, I tell you what, Mike, man, uh, I really appreciate all this insight and information you've given us today. Uh, and it's got me itching to get out and uh, and get out and, and try to look for some more mushrooms this week and in the weeks, you know, the handful of days following. I think where I live in Johnson County, we finally got some rain two days ago, uh, so the moisture is in the ground. Um, we we had a Excellent. a cold. The the evenings are not. I mean, we we just came off of a, a hot spell or a warm spell. The evenings probably aren't at that 50 degree mark yet, but the days have been above 65, like somewhere around the 65. So uh, I don't know. I'm going to go check some, you know, check out my my spots that I know about and see what's there. It's very likely that you'll find them, uh, uh, and if 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 not, keep on looking. Uh, yep. Don't give up. Uh, you know. Um, Sometimes they'll they'll be right underfoot, and I've stepped on them before. And uh, I know friends uh, that have passed them by, and I, I say, "Hey, you just went by one." And it's a matter of um, of looking enough and looking in the right spot, and where all the conditions are right. And especially if you've got any dying elm trees, uh, and I sing dying instead of dead, um, that. Um, you know, where the morels are doing their thing. They're getting ready to push up and move move on. <laughs> yep. Yep. Well, again, thanks, Mike, for your time. My honor, Dan. Thank you for inviting me. 